Hebrews, please, in chapter 1. I want to read this chapter, verses 1 through 14, Hebrews, in chapter 1. Give you an extra second to find it. In a month or so, your Bibles will open to Hebrews automatically. So, to get that crease worn in. Hear the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, But all the angels worship him. The angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, your, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now in this opening chapter, the author of Hebrews gives us a word, one word that's very helpful for us, not only in understanding what he's to bring to us, but to understand Christianity, to understand Christ, and it's in verse 4. And it's the word superior. That will be a resounding theme as we read this, that Christ is superior. He's superior to anything that has been, He's superior to anything that will be. He's superior to anything we can even imagine. He is the one who is superior. And all that he brings is better. All that he brings is superior to anything else. There's no one to whom we can look who is and can provide as Jesus is and provides. In fact, let me just run you very quickly through uses of this word. If you'll turn to Hebrews and chapter 6 and verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, that is, things which are superior, same word, better things that belong to salvation. So all that belongs to salvation is better than they could ever imagine and even than they were experiencing at that moment. So he says, there are better things to come, all because of Christ. And then chapter 7 and verse 7, he's comparing an inferior with a superior. In this case, he's comparing Abraham with a priestly king, named Melchizedek, which we'll talk about whenever we get to chapter 7 next year. Um, and he's doing that to say that Christ is superior to both. Verse 7, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, meaning Christ is ultimately the superior, so he's the one that will be blessed. And then in verse uh, 
19. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope, that is a superior hope, is introduced through which we draw near to Christ, or near to God. Jesus brings this superior, this better hope, a better hope than could ever be imagined, than they had ever realized before. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, a superior covenant. Jesus is the one who guarantees this covenant, and it's the superior one, it's the best one. Then in chapter 8, verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better or superior. That is, this covenant that Jesus mediates, this new covenant is superior to the old since it is enacted on better or superior promises. The promises of the new covenant are superior to those of the old. And then in chapter 9, in verse 23, the author of Hebrews says this, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, that is, more, that is superior sacrifices. The sacrifice of Christ is superior that, to anything that has come in the past. In chapter 10, in verse 34, it says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted, accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession or superior possession and an abiding one. That is, the possessions that we receive because we belong to Christ are superior to anything else. And so whatever, whatever we give up, whatever we sacrifice, whatever is taken from us, though we have Christ, we still have the superior possession. Nothing is better than what comes in and through him. In chapter 11 and verse 16, the author of Hebrews is writing about these who lived in great faith and died with this great faith, those great Old Testament saints. And he says this about them, but as it is, they desire a better or superior country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he's prepared for them a city. That is, they were looking for something superior to what they had. And that is what Christ brings. And then in chapter 11, verse 35 speaking of these very same ones who died for their faith. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life or a superior life. That is, a life that was better than what they experienced then. Thus, they were willing to give up their lives because they knew that there was a life coming that was better, superior, and all because of Christ. In verse 40, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect, that is, Christ brings that which is superior even to what the Old Testament saints had. And then in chapter 12, verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word or a superior word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel didn't speak the word that the blood of Jesus speaks. The blood of Jesus speaks the word forgiveness. And so the author of Hebrews is going to be running with this word because it reminds him of Jesus, because it's the very essence of, of what he brings, that which is superior to everything else. Now you see, this concentration on Christ is so very, very important. Because in order to discredit Christianity, one would have to discredit Christ. Because Christianity is Christ. Thus, to Affirm Christianity, one is affirming Christ, 
because Christianity is Christ. It's interesting to me as I've been talking to people now for a million years, it seems, uh, about these things, that in debate or discussion, there's often a tendency to try to discredit me, for instance, as we discuss, with the anticipation that if only they could discredit my life and my intellect, then they could say no to Christ, which of course is foolish. I embarrass myself all the time in the context of my own life and intellect. It's not the thing that I put up as the final apologetic to become a Christian. No, the final apologetic, the thing you put up in order for people to see what Christianity is all about is it's Christ. And so if you're in debate and you lose, still, don't worry as long as you've put forward Christ. Whether they like you or not is really not important at that point. The important thing is that you've put forward Christ. It's interesting to me, too, that sometimes people are, a fewer number, but are impressed with my intellect or my life. And thus, they want to become a Christian because of that. That is equally foolish. I cannot save them. And their impression of me really is irrelevant. As the old saints would say, what think ye of Christ? What do you think of him? He's the one that you need to be even more than impressed with, but captivated by, not simply to acknowledge, but be willing to cast everything else aside and follow him. You see, it's all about Christ, sometimes people try to discredit the church and say, we've seen the life and the witness of the church and therefore Christ must not really be who he claims to be. Oh, that I wish our church to be all that Christ calls us to be, that we could stand on a hill and say, look at us, and if you look at us, you'll see Christ so clearly. But yet I know that we're deficient even in those things. But still what we must do is put up Christ because he, not us, is the one. There are others who come to this church from time to time and they're so impressed with us that they want to be Christians. And I said, no, 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 that's not it either. It's not simply joining us that makes you a believer in Christ and saves your soul. It's Christ. What do you think of him? He's the one you need to be impressed with. He's the one you need to be captivated by. He's the one you need to worship. He's the one that you need not simply to acknowledge but to cast all of us aside and to follow him. Sometimes people gauge what they think of Christianity on the basis of their circumstances. If life is going well, then God is good. Thus they'll follow who they imagine Christ to be. But of course, what happens when the circumstances of life turn down? Circumstances of life are not the final apologetic as to whether or not Christianity is true. The final apologetic of whether Christianity is true or not is, is Christ. And so you see, everything that comes against Christianity needs to come against Christ. If it just comes against you or me, it's, it's fighting the wrong battle. If it comes against the church, it's fighting the wrong battle. If it comes against the circumstance of life, they're fighting the wrong battle. The question is, what about Jesus? Who was he? Who did he claim to be? Was he really that? Did Christ do what he says that he did? It's all about him, you see. So anything that comes against us, be they the cults of Joseph Smith or the Jehovah's Witnesses, be they the other religions of the world, be they Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Judaism, be they simply turning against God altogether, atheism. Still, the question is, what think ye of Christ? It shouldn't surprise us then that when the world does come against us, books like this one, The Da Vinci Code, is, is published. Um, interesting blasphemous bestseller. The, um, 
But the point is quite interesting. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Because, you see, it, it takes place around a murder. There's a man murdered. A man named Jacques. He's a French last name, too, but I'm not so good at that. Named Jacques. And, and he dies protecting the location and the proof of the Holy Grail. And a team of people come around to try to try to, to solve this murder, and in so doing, to find the location of this Holy Grail. There's, there's Lee Teabing, who's an historian and a Holy Grail scholar. There's Robert Langdon, who's a Harvard professor of religious symbology. That is religious symbolism. And then there is Sophie, who is the estranged granddaughter of Jacques, who was killed. And she works for the police. And they come together to try to find out who murdered him, but in the meantime, to try to find out this Holy Grail. And the thesis really is that if this Holy Grail can be found, Christianity will be destroyed. In fact, the only reason that this Holy Grail is being suppressed by the church is so that Christianity won't be destroyed at its finding, because they know that if it's found, then, in fact, Christianity will be destroyed. And the Holy Grail isn't what we've been taught it is by the Indiana Jones movies. For it isn't the cup of Christ in this book. It isn't, it isn't the cup of Christ that he used on the Last Supper that even some others mythologically say uh, Joseph of Arimathea took and collected the blood of Christ. It isn't that. But the Holy Grail is actually Mary Magdalene, who was the wife, mistress, of Jesus, who then gave birth to the royal line of Jesus, his offspring. That being the Holy Grail. Now what's fascinating about this is that the thesis, that is, if that's true, then Christianity is destroyed. The thesis is actually correct. And Dan Brown, the author of this book, I suspect knows that the only way to destroy Christianity is to destroy, discredit Christ. Because if he's shown to be other than the divine Son of God, then there is no Christianity. And so he, he begins to attack at that point. And, and I actually like that. I mean, I, in the sense that, at least he gets it. I mean, I, I, don't play games with us. It's a silly little book. But, but don't, don't play games. If you really want to discredit Christianity... Don't play around by trying to discredit the church. Don't play around by trying to discredit Christians. Go right after Christ. And so he does. And he, he says that really Jesus was never thought to be divine until the 4th century, that is, when the Council of Nicaea met and actually voted him the Son of God. And here's the passage that um, they did, in a sense. But, but there's another point to that, I suppose, we'll get to. Sophie's head was spinning. All of this relates to the grail. Indeed, Tebing said, stay with me. During this fusion of religions, Constantine, now just parenthetically, Constantine was the emperor at the time and, and had, was said to have converted to Christianity. There's some debate about that. But he certainly changed from the emperor persecuting Christians to allowing them to live and allowing them to worship. And even more than that, Indeed, Tebing said, stay with me. During this fusion of religions, Constantine needed to strengthen the new Christian tradition and held a famous ecumenical gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. 
Sophie had heard of it only insofar as it's being the birthplace of the Nicene Creed. It's always nice when they name creeds after where they had them, then you can remember that. Um, that's not in the book. Um, at this gathering, Tebing said many aspects of Christianity were debated and voted upon. The date of Easter, the role of the bishops, the administration of sacraments, and of course the divinity of Jesus. I don't follow, she said. His divinity? My dear, Tebing declared, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless immortal. Not the Son of God? Right, Tebing said. Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. Hold on, you're saying Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? A relatively close vote at that, Tebing added. Nonetheless, establishing Christ's divinity was critical to the further unification of the Roman Empire and to the new Vatican power base. By officially endorsing Jesus as the Son of God, Constantine turned Jesus into a deity who existed beyond the scope of the human world, an entity whose power was unchangeable, thus not only precluded further pagan challenges to Christianity, but now the followers of Christ were able to redeem themselves only via the established sacred channel of the Roman Catholic Church. Sophie glanced at Landon, and he gave her a soft nod of concurrence, as only a Harvard professor could do. That's not in the book either. <laughs> to read these things with feeling. It's a bestseller. It's going to be a movie. Tom Hanks is going to be Robert Langdon. And Ron Howard, Opie, is going to, uh, going to direct it. I read. It's all, it was all about power, Tebing continued. Christ as Messiah was critical to the functioning of the church and state. Many scholars claim that the early church literally stole Jesus from his original followers, hijacking his human message, shrouding it in an impenetrable cloak of divinity, and using, using it to expand their own power. I've written several books on the topic. Now, understand these are all fictional characters. This guy doesn't exist. He didn't write those books. Um, we have to always be careful getting our theology from a novel. When someone once said, Getting your theology from a novel is like trying to study for the bar exam reading John Grisham. So be cautious. But the point is very helpful because you see, at least he's going at the Christian jugular. At least he's going really at our strength. At least he's going at the point who's Jesus. And the big question really of all of history is who is this Jesus? Is it true as he writes that uh, until the Nicene Council in 325, is it true that until that moment in history Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet? Is that it? Is that all that Peter, James, and John, and Paul, the author of Hebrews, thought of Jesus, just a mere man, a mere mortal, not the divine Son of God, 100% man, 100% God? Is it true that Jesus' divinity was really simply the result of a vote? I'm sort of glad he won, but wasn't there more to it than that? Is it true that the early church literally stole Jesus from his original followers, hijacking his human message, shrouding it in an impenetrable cloak of divinity, using it to expand their own power? Is that, is that really true? But you see, he is right when he makes this statement as well, that if Jesus really is the divine Son of God, then this is true. Then Jesus is deity, who's beyond the scope of the human world, an entity whose power is unchallengeable. You see, if Jesus really is the Son of God, if he really is divine, if he really is the Lord, 
And everything that he did and everything that he said is true. And if everything that he did and everything that he said is true, then we need to submit to him. But in submitting to him means that we're turning our back on everything else that we thought was true and everything else we clung to in the course of our lives while we're clinging to him and to him alone. And that, you see, is the rub. Who really, who really is the Lord? It shouldn't surprise us that the main point of the Da Vinci Code is also the main point of Hebrews, and that is who is Jesus. The conclusion is quite different. But the author of Hebrews wrote about 265 years before Jesus was voted on. And notice what he said, verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. That is, Jesus, the son, is the last word, the definitive word, as we said last week, about God. He's the very one who reveals. And was he qualified to do that or not? Was he simply a man coming like the prophets, giving information as the prophets did? The prophets were mere human beings. They had received revelation from God. And God said, tell the people this about me. And they did. But the son, you see, is different on a whole different level, on a whole other page. Because here's the description of the son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That can't be said of the prophets. That can't be said of a mere mortal, one who created the world. That's only the prerogative of God. Verse 3, he's the radiance of the glory of God. That is, if you see him, you've seen the Father. He radiates all that is of God. And he's the exact imprint of his nature. That is, if you were able to, to, to get a, a DNA on Jesus, you'd find divinity there. If, I don't think divinity shows up in DNA. I don't think it's that good. The exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's not a mere person. Someone who does that. Then after making purification for sins, that is, he's the Savior, his life for ours, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, you see, that's all true of Jesus, all before the Council of Nicaea, all before 325 A.D. That's the thoughts of the early church. No one had to steal Jesus from the early church and shroud him with divinity. It was there, right in these pages, we could go through the whole New Testament concerning that, but we'll follow the line of reasoning of the author of Hebrews, because then he goes on to verse 4 and says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And you say, well, why did he have to become it? Notice, having become, that is, after he made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become, that is, that point in time, having become, because he made purifications for sin and was elevated to be the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels, why did he have to become it? Wasn't he it already? Wasn't he already superior to the angels? And the answer, of course, is yes. He was already superior to the angels because he made them. He created them. The creator is always superior to the creature. But there's another sense even in which he's superior to them. Not simply that. Not simply that he created them. But he's been given a name that is superior to their name. Their name simply means messenger. He's the son. And as the Son, He's God in the flesh. And He became Son, not only in all of eternity, not only at His incarnation, 
but is his, at his exaltation. Because it's then that he completes his work and he sits, bless you, on high. Turn to Ephesians. I'm paying attention to you. I just expect the same. Uh, Ephesians and chapter 1, please. In verse 20. When I retire, I'm writing a book on you. Just on what I see every week, after week, after week. Ephesians 1, verse 20. This is the apostles talking about the uh, power of God that is towards us. That He, that is God the Father, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him, that is Jesus. When He raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named. You see, if you think about Jesus existing in all of eternity as the divine Son of God, He comes born of this virgin on that particular morning where He enters into humanity, but takes on human nature, doesn't give up His divinity, but takes on human nature, And there he is, the unique, one and only begotten Son of God. No one else like him. 100% God, 100% man. He comes to die. That's his task. That's his job, if you will. That's his calling. That's what he agreed to. He was going to come and die to take the sins of people upon himself, though he be innocent and righteous. And he goes to the cross and he dies. And that's humiliating. Theologians refer to that as the humiliation of Christ. His incarnation is coming. And his living as a man and is taking upon himself the guilt, the sin of people. His humiliation. And then he dies. But then comes the exaltation. And that is in his resurrection, where the Father affirms all that he did. And the Father affirms who he is, saying, you're the very, you're my son. And you didn't die for your sins, you died for their sins. Therefore, you are raised up, having won the victory And this is now proof. And now, in your exaltation, now that you've done that which no one else had ever done, no one else could possibly do, now that you've died and paid the penalty for the sins of sinners, I'm going to exalt you. And in your exaltation, now I'm going to give you a name that is above every name. So that your name trumps every other name. It's it's, it's better than president. It's better than, than general. right? It's better than every other name. Name he gives him. Turn to Philippians in chapter 2. I read you this, as you remember, from our call to worship. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's the humiliation of Jesus. I would urge you some time to just meditate on the humiliation of Jesus, what that was like. Then, verse 9, Therefore, that is after all of that, therefore God has highly exalted him above and bestowed how he exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, that's 
the very name of Jesus, the very name of Jesus Christ, the Lord above every other name that trumps all other names. He sits in majesty on high. Romans, please, in chapter 1. Verse 1, Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, when He was raised from the dead, that was God's declaration, that was God's pronouncement, that was God's exaltation, that was, in a sense, His coronation. You're my Son, and I'm pleased with you. Well, I've said that before, but, but, but now you've proven all of that, and I've proven that you're my Son because... I accepted your sacrifice and you've risen from the dead because you're holy and you will not see decay in your grave but you will be raised and I'm declaring with power because of this resurrection that you are the very Son of God and so the author of Hebrews says now when you listen to Jesus you're listening to the divine Son of God when you see him you see the Father because he's now become by way of his exaltation this one who's received this name that is above every name, this name of Son, that he's perfectly related to the Father, that he's the heir of all things. So the author of Hebrews, again, moves on, just so that we would know that we didn't need to vote on Jesus' divinity in the fourth century. He moves on, for which, verse 5, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my Son, Today I've begotten. You know what the author of Hebrews is going to do? Is now he's going to grab hold of various sentences and various portions of Old Testament scripture, mostly from the Psalms. And each one of these things is going to, going to point to, to first the kingship of Jesus and his divinity. Because all of these passages relate in one way, shape, or form to a king. But yet you get a sense it's bigger than just an earthly king pointing to a throne, and yet you get the sense that it's bigger than just an earthly throne. And yet each of these passages could be well applied to an ancient king of Israel, but yet you get the sense there's more. For instance, turn to Psalm 2. We won't do all of these. We don't have time to do all of these explicitly. But look at this one, Psalm number 2. Well, this is where this first expression comes. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so you get this sense that the psalmist is saying, you know, on the face of the earth are people, nations really, who are against God, even against his anointed, even against the one that he's chosen to govern. Verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs. It's about God. And it's not a... I don't know exactly how God does laugh. But it's that kind of laugh that says, you people just don't know what you're doing. How do you think you can come against me? I always find one of the humorous parts of Scripture, there's not a lot of them, but one of the humorous parts of Scripture is when Adam sins and runs from God and hides. I have a... It doesn't say that God laughed there, but I just have a sneaking suspicion that when God was walking around the garden, he's going, 
this is really silly. You know, it's sort of like the little kid that goes, you can't see me, you know, kind of thing. It's like, Adam, you know, that's a sin does that to us, doesn't it? And so the nations now are raising, raging against God as if they can come against God. As if they could come against his anointed one, his Messiah, really, literally, anointed one, his king. What a crazy idea. But yet it's only because they no longer believe that God exists and that God is real and that God is God. He, sits in the he who sits in the throne, I'm sorry, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak uh, to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so you're thinking, all right, God's going to put a king on the throne in Jerusalem to rule. And we know that he did put kings on the throne in Jerusalem to rule. But they didn't fare so well generally. Verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's the point that the author of Hebrews brings out. And you get the sense, okay, God could be saying, and he has said, of some of the kings of Israel, you are my sons. But you, you get the sense that this one's more powerful than just those kings. Because then he says to them, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You get the sense that this is bigger than that. And the author of Hebrews wants us to think it's bigger than that. Because he's saying, listen, this is more than, this is about more than just one of these kings. This is about my anointed one, my very son. Turn to Acts chapter 13, just so you'll understand how it is that the apostles understood this passage in Psalm 2. Acts 13, verse 26. This is the Apostle Paul's preaching, really. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. That is, they didn't get it. They didn't. They should have just been reading their Bibles. They've been reading their Bibles and they would have understood who Jesus was. Verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus also as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. See, it wasn't at Nicaea that they first came up with the fact that Jesus had something written about him in the Old Testament that caused him to be known as the son of God, the very divine one. The apostle Paul, hundreds of years before Nicaea, knew it. And he said, I understand what the second psalm is saying. It's saying that this son coronated as king is the divine son of God. And then he goes on in Hebrews 1. Or again, I will be to him a father, middle of verse 5. Again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This was first said really of Solomon as Nathan the prophet is speaking to David. David wanted to build the temple. Nathan said, no, God isn't calling you to do that. Your son will do it. And thus, 
this promise. But in the midst of that passage, and I don't have time to turn to this, but in the midst of that passage in 2 Samuel, David's given the promise that his throne will be an everlasting one. An everlasting one. Have you ever tried to sit on an everlasting throne as a non-everlasting person? The only one that can sit on an everlasting throne is an everlasting person. And thus we need an everlasting person to go on the throne. And so Solomon might be one in a succession of those who will sit on a throne, the throne of David. But if there's one who's going to sit on it everlastingly. So then he goes on, verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn, that is Jesus, when he brings the firstborn, firstborn in the sense that he has preeminence, firstborn in the sense that he's the heir of all things. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. And we remember that Sunday of Advent that we call the angel candle that we light. And we do it to commemorate the fact that when the firstborn was born, there were angels. Jesus wasn't an angel. But the angels came and sang at his birth. Of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire from Psalm 104, meaning... These angels are God's servants. If he wants them to be wind, they'll be wind. If he wants them to be fire, they'll be fire. He'll send them out however he wants to send them out. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, from Psalm 45, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That is, this is this everlasting throne. And your God. And you will sit upon it. And then to prove his point in verse 10, the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 102, which is a psalm exclusively about God. At least this portion. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, that is, the earth. But you remain, that is, your everlasting. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. Now, he's saying that of this son. He's saying, son, you're God in the flesh. Verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. I'll tell you what verse when I get there. Matthew 22, verse 41. Now, when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So, in these days of Jesus, it was clear in Judaism, there was a sense that the Christ would be a person, and he would have a heritage. That is, he would have an ethnic heritage. Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirits, calls him Lord, saying, and then Jesus quotes, Psalm 110, the same psalm that the author of Hebrews uses. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hands until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is it his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The author of Hebrews says, listen, this one who is son is the very creator of the foundations of the earth. And he's the one who sits on a throne. And right now he's ruling and reigning sovereignly putting all of his enemies under his feet. On the cross, he defeated sin and death. And now, in, in, in experience, in history, 
He's putting sin and death under his feet, even as he saves those who will die yet live. He's the one, the very one, the Christ. Then finally this, he says, Are they, meaning angels, are they not all ministering spirits set out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? He says, listen, these angels are cool. I mean, angels are cool. I mean, they live in heaven. They worship around the throne of God. Uh, They don't have bodies. They're spirits. They go all over the place. And when God wants them to be seen, poof, they can be seen. That's really cool. But it's not like Jesus, the eternal Son of God. In fact, they do his bidding, not he theirs. They do his bidding. You see, one of the things is we don't have to call upon angels because angels are on the... uh, They work for God. And thus, if we need what an angel can do in the course of our lives, God will send them. Psalm 91 says that he will send his angels and he will make them guardians over you to guard you, to watch you. There's a wonderful story in 2 Kings chapter 6. You don't need to turn to that. But if you have children, this makes a great bedtime story. Uh, Because it's A, true, but B, it's just fascinating. Um, They'll have some nightmares, but it's it's one of those great Bible stories that's really, really, really good. It's about Elisha. The king of Syria is captured and captured uh, Israel at that point. He's invading and he says, is there anybody left who's against us, meaning against Syria? And they go, yeah, there's this prophet Elisha. He says, we'll send the armies against him. So the armies go to Elisha. Well, Elisha's asleep, and in the morning, Elisha's servant wakes up, looks out the window, and sees the armies of the king of Syria to come after them. And he pokes Elisha and says, I'm a little nervous. And Elisha's not nervous, which makes nervous people even more nervous. And, and so he says, don't worry. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. I have a sneaking suspicion that the servant went one, two, and then looked out the window and went, 8,001, 8,002. I didn't quite understand. So Elisha said, God, just open his eyes. And God opened up the servant's eyes. And he saw in reality what God had sent these angelic forces of fire, chariots of fire. Then I think he went back to bed. If we need them, God will send them. So we don't get hung up on angels. We don't do angel stuff. We don't worship angels. We don't talk to angels. We don't pray to angels. We don't have angels on our dashboards. If you do, I hope it's just decoration. Because a little angel in reality doesn't look like that angel on your dashboard. Because every time an angel showed up, people fainted. They'd always have to say, don't be afraid, just an angel. Oh, okay. So I don't know what they look like, but they were scary for people. Remember one time before I got married, someone looked at Karen and said, don't worry, Bill, she's an angel. And he went, oh, fear not. (laughs) Don't tell her. (laughs) But you see, the author of Hebrews is getting right to the very heart of the matter, right in the very beginning. He's saying, listen, if you want to know about God, you've got to know about Christ Because he is God in the flesh. And if you want to know about Christianity, and you want to discuss Christianity, you've got to talk about Jesus. You've got to talk about Christ. He's got to be preeminent. He is the superior one. 
He's our trump card. He's all we have. He's the only thing we can put forth. I can't put forth my life and my intellect. I can't put forth the church. I can't put forth good circumstances in the context of life. I can't put forth happy endings. I can only put forth Christ, the truth. Here he is. Now it just so happens that around 320 AD, there was a man by the name of Arius who had the and the guts, I suppose, to stand before the church and say, Jesus of Nazareth is not the divine Son of God. Oh, he's, he's great, but he's just a man. He's a created being. Alexander, who was his bishop, came against him and condemned him. And he excommunicated him. But Arius was a clever sort very likable fellow. And so the debate continued to rage even though he had already been condemned and excommunicated. Constantine, for whatever his motives, knew that there was this trouble in the church and it was affecting everything. And so he called a council in 325 and brought two to three hundred bishops. And the great thing about this council was that they didn't have to come in hiding but Constantine, he actually said, you can come and you can be safe. And, I'll... and so bishops showed up who had been maimed by persecution in previous decades of emperors who hated Christianity. And they showed up in the midst of that council. And in the midst of that council, they, they had to deal with this question of Arius. Is he right or is he wrong? And they dealt with it rather summarily. It wasn't as our highly esteemed author says only two voted in favor. The truth of the matter is only two voted against it. And they were banished. And the council said, what, what should we say about Christ? And they said this. One Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, Begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Now, where did they get that information? Well, I think they read Hebrews. And I think they read Acts. I think they read Matthew. I think they read Revelation. They think they read the Psalms. They think they read the narrative passages of the Old Testament. In fact, I bet they went from Genesis to Revelation. And they said, God has said that Jesus is his divine son. So in response to that, the author of Hebrews puts it like this. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You see, those who come against us know the point is Christ. And if he is the divine Son of God, then he is the Lord. And if he is the Lord... And it means that everything that he did and everything that he said is true. And if everything that he said and everything that he did is true, it means that you and I are not God. And we need
and we must submit to him, not to ourselves or anyone else, for he is superior above all. And the author of Hebrews says to us that this very Christ, this very Son of God has come. What will happen if we neglect such a great salvation? That's ours to ponder. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray for us, for me, for us, that we wouldn't neglect this great salvation. That Christ, who is superior above all, has brought his name is above every name, who rules and reigns, who made us. Pray none would neglect it, but we would all affirm that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he is divine, that he is the one in whom we have hope and that we will leave everything else to follow him. Please, I pray, work that in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please.